the second in our two-part series on a very important and timely topic, provider wellness. Today, we are picking up on the previous conversation that I had with Dr. Locke with Dr. Jake Van Epps, who is a staff psychologist at the University of Utah Health Resiliency Center. Dr. Van Epps received his bachelor's degree from Castleton University, followed by a master's in education at the University of Georgia, and his PhD in counseling psychology from the Pennsylvania State University. He is a fellow East Coaster like myself who came west to the mountains of Utah. We'll be discussing the practical and meaningful ways that providers can address and improve their own wellness during the time of COVID and beyond. He will also highlight resources that are available both for faculty and staff at University of Utah Health, as well as for those outside of the University of Utah system that address physician burnout and provider wellness. Don't forget to go to our website for more resources and links, including those discussed in the podcast episode, as well as the link to get free CME credit for listening. Enjoy. Dr. Van Epps, you want to tell us a little bit more about your background and how you ended up working at the Resiliency Center? Sure. I, um, I got my PhD in counseling psychology from the Pennsylvania State University. Uh, counseling psychology as a field is is um, uh, pretty oriented to normal development and also kind of uh, facilitating uh, positive development. And so some of the principles in which we're trained kind of fit well with a a wellness orientation uh, like we have at the Resiliency Center. Uh, I was also in a a small clinic that we did uh, wellness consultations with businesses as well as applied wellness uh, principles uh, for folks with chronic health-related concerns like pain or fatigue. Um, uh, most recently, before joining the Resiliency Center, I was at the uh, University Counseling Center here at the University of Utah, where uh, some of those same principles were put into practice for students all around campus. And then recently joining the Resiliency Center, I was excited to be able to provide support for all the healthcare workers that um, I know there's a great need right now. Awesome. So what exactly is the Resiliency Center? The Resiliency Center is a kind of a small outfit. We have a few therapists and uh, some administrative assistants and program managers. And and what we do is we are, uh, our mission is to foster wellness and resilience for all University of Utah health employees. Mm-hmm. as well as um, faculty and staff at the Colleges of Health Sciences. So it's not um, just physicians, it's nurses, techs, EKG, you know, hospital leaders, assistants. like everyone who works for University of Utah Health? Absolutely everyone, yep. Awesome. And does it cost anything? It's uh, free services. That's great. And we were just chatting a little bit before um, about how you can access people who aren't exactly at the hospital and through the telehealth. Do you want to explain that a little bit more? Yeah, you know, I think uh, we offer our, we offer a lot of our services um, through telehealth means, either through Zoom if we're doing consultation or through our electronic medical record system, simple practice if we're doing uh, more kind of confidential uh, consultations like psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, that allows us to reach folks where they are and when they are in a way that, um, previously wasn't possible. And I think that everyone is more accustomed to meeting in this way since COVID. And so it really feels like it, it's, it's expanded our reach. Awesome. So one thing I love about the Resiliency Center is I feel like there's so many resources on the website that are not just for the University of Utah audience. So 
Um, I'm really hoping that listeners to the podcast will, if you just Google University of Utah Health Resiliency Center, um, the website comes up and there's a, on the main page there, there's a like COVID um, link that just has a lot of great information. Some of which I'm going to go through while we're chatting, but you know, you don't have to be a Utah person at all. You can be anywhere in the world. And I just think there's a lot of great info on there. So people, people should look that up. Yeah. Thanks. And, and we also uh, partner with Accelerate, um, which is a kind of a, a public facing webpage. Um, it's sponsored by UUH, but it has a lot of tools on there that we've worked with uh, the Accelerate, the great folks at Accelerate to uh, um, put out there. And that is great stuff for managers to kind of download and think about implementing with their teams mm-hmm. or folks looking for uh, personal services as well. And that's also, you don't need like a University of Utah Health login. It's for anyone, right? Correct. It's well. public based on there. Um, so tell us a little bit about your, I know your PhD, some of your research was in self-compassion. And I think for provider wellness during COVID, especially, that's a huge thing. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what self-compassion is and how we can use it as a medical provider. Sure. Um, yeah, my yeah my my dissertation was on self-compassion and how that um, impacts the psychotherapy process. Uh, you know, I think it's a pretty ubiquitous experience that uh, we as humans are really hard on ourselves, especially mm-hmm. during moments of mistakes or struggling and um, self-compassion is considered a, an important tool to kind of fight back against some of that uh, self-critical self-dialogue. So what self-compassion is, is cultivating a sense of mindfulness uh, about your current experience. Uh, and we'll get into mindfulness, I think a little bit more deeply mm-hmm. in a second. Mm-hmm. It's also cultivating a sense of benevolence towards yourself in the face of this uh, suffering or struggling or uh, mistakes that you made. And that's, you know, when we're hard on ourselves and we're really negative on ourselves, it it limits the our ability to problem solve and come up with creative and new solutions. So mm-hmm. if we're able to foster a, a greater sense of benevolence towards ourselves in the moment, then um, we're going to be able to be more creative. And the last thing is uh, connecting to a common sense of humanity uh, in our struggles basically understanding that we're not alone in our suffering, not alone in our struggling, not alone in making mistakes. Uh, And hopefully that helps us feel less alone, less isolated. Also, when we do feel alone and isolated, we tend to not reach out and ask for help. Mm -hmm. So that precludes us from learning about others who have gone through similar experiences. And and, um, it just reinforces the idea that um, we're maybe worse off than other folks. So all three of those components can be uh, really helpful to kind of um, battle against some of that self-criticism that comes naturally to all of us. Yeah, there's one definition I wrote down from, um, so I I know you guys cite her and some of the stuff from the Resiliency Center, um, Dr. Kristen Neff, who's a psychologist who's big into this, and she defines self-compassion as giving ourselves the same kindness and care we give to a good friend. And then I also like it in terms of being a medical provider as I always think of it as the caring that I give towards my patients and their families. And as a pediatrician, a lot of it is obviously family-based is the same that I want to give to myself. And it's a lot easier to be kind to patients sometimes than it is towards myself. And I think doctors in general are better at that, like treating their patients with kindness than necessarily treating themselves that way. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's actually one of the main techniques that we utilize to kind of increase someone's capacity for self-compassion is we have them imagine somebody else in their very situation, a good friend in their very situation. And mm -hmm. what would a compassionate response to that friend be? And that helps them develop some of the verbiage associated with a compassionate response. And then they can kind of turn that inward because some people really struggle to kind of find that compassionate language for themselves. But as soon as you kind of take it out of their, their personhood and put it into a friend, they seem to get that language quickly. It's, I was going to say, I bet you most medical providers can do that pretty fast. Yeah. They're, yeah. Right. They're, I mean, they're trained and skilled in that. Right. Um, so talk a little bit about, um, like you mentioned mindfulness, what exactly you think mindfulness is and how this fits into the realm of self-compassion. Yeah. So mindfulness is, you know, critical main important, uh, construct within the concept of self-compassion. Uh, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, who um, introduced mindfulness to kind of Western science, I would say largely, um, although uh, not completely, um, defined it as awareness that arises through paying attention on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally, mm -hmm. uh, which I, I really like that. Uh, mindfulness uh, is often anchored with uh, the breath, uh, mm -hmm. I think. There's nothing more present than the breath in the moment. Right. And so it's about um, s practicing sustaining your attention in that present moment and on your breath. Uh, and then, you know, from within that arises an awareness of your internal experiences, your thoughts, your feelings, your physical sensations, your uh, sensory inputs. Mm -hmm. and, and the idea is to just kind of experience those things with curiosity, a beginner's mind. Uh, without any judgment, which is pretty hard to do and not the typical way that humans experience their internal um, right. experiences. So it takes some practice, but yeah. um, we know that like folks who are depressed or sad, they tend to elaborate on negative things and loss from their past. Mm -hmm. Folks who are anxious tend to elaborate on upcoming events with negative outcome expectations. Mm -hmm. uh, mindfulness connected to the breath is focused on the present. So it's like neither of those two things. Right. And, and so uh, we think that the mechanisms that mindfulness enables us to kind of uh, change some of those experiences is we develop the skill of sustaining attention in the present moment. And we also develop the skill of switching our attention when we start going down a, a rumination cycle. So mm -hmm. we start going on and on to the point where it becomes unhelpful it can be difficult to switch our attention back to what we're doing in the present moment, but practicing mindfulness does help us do that better. And, yeah, for me, I find, yeah. um, so the, the lack, the non-judgment piece is, is hard, but I think that's something that to be, like you said, cultivated. And for me, it starts with little moments of mindfulness, like doing things like brushing my teeth and only focusing on brushing my teeth, which is, you know, should be for two minutes, but I don't always do it for two minutes right, right. <laughs> or um, driving the car and just focusing on the road and the trees and not like what my kids are talking about in the background, but like little, little moments or for a physician, I try and be mindful as I like knock on the door before I go into the next patient room and do a couple of deep breaths then, or washing my hands in the room, which I always do first and like mindfully I know it sounds super cheesy, but like 
thinking of the water touching my hands and stuff like that just like brings me into the moment then with that patient I, I find that to be helpful yeah you know when I was in grad school I had kind of a family emergency and I had to run home to kind of help take care of things and when I came back um, I came, you know, right back into grad school, which is hectic and busy. And I was doing my clinical practicum and, and whatnot. And I remember uh, talking to my supervisor saying, like, I feel like I'm just not doing good patient care right now. I can't figure out what's going on. And we looked at tapes and like, sure enough, I wasn't doing, I wasn't doing anything like dangerous, but right. it just wasn't like my best care. And, you know, he taught me then, which was, you know, several years ago to, um, take 30 seconds, take a few deep breaths, uh, and, and notice my bodily sensations, my thoughts, my emotions without judgment, and then bring in my next patient and what my intentions are, you know, according to my values with that patient. This takes 30 seconds and it like completely revamped my clinical care mm -hmm. the following week, just doing that small intervention. And, and that's something that I teach a lot because I right. think it's really helpful. Yeah. And it's not something that takes, like you said, it doesn't take a super long time. Right. Um, and then with going on with the breathing. So one thing that I do myself is this box or square breathing. And uh -huh. apparently um, Navy, when I learned that Navy SEALs do this, I thought it was pretty cool. ways <laughs> um, yeah. A way to kind of activate the parasympathetic nervous system. Do you want to just explain what that is to folks? Yeah. So, uh, you know, square box breathing is basically you uh, breathe in slowly for a certain amount of seconds, and then you hold for a certain amount of seconds, and then you uh, slowly exhale through pursed lips for the same amount of seconds and then you hold uh, for the same amount of seconds and you repeat the cycle. So mm -hmm. you're breathing in, then you're holding and then you're breathing out and then you're holding. Mm -hmm. And you know, the holds in between the breath work is, can be pretty difficult. It really does demand some attention right. in the present moment to kind of be able to do it, which is one of the ways I think it's so effective. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 you know, I recommend folks start at maybe three seconds, mm -hmm. see how that feels, and then they can build up uh, each part of the cycle and increase it in seconds to see how far they can go. Right. I use this with my kids when they're in pain. I use this with, you know, I use this with folks all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think like you said, the, um, the holding is, can be challenging, especially, I mean, no one likes to feel like they're out of breath or can't, can't breathe. So I think it's a good feeling to feel a bit uncomfortable and then know that you can sit there with it and it's okay. And before you go on to the next breath has been helpful for me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I like that. Um, so one thing that I think is helpful for medical providers and is on your, the resiliency website is talking about a a check-in, um, team check-ins, personal check-ins. Do you want to go over how that is helpful for a medical team and what that is exactly? Yeah, maybe I could go over kind of our general programmings. Sure, which includes yeah. that, if that's okay. I mean, we do, we offer mindfulness training, which would be some of the training that we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. um, we offer resiliency workshops that are targeting specific needs of teams, departments, or divisions. We often use engagement data to kind of inform that. Mm -hmm. um, we also offer um, the individual uh, or ongoing resilience cons consultations and, and to help leaders uh, plan for resilient development within their team. Uh, we do one-time debriefings and group support. So if something happened 
maybe there was a workplace trauma that was a lot of people experienced. We'll go in and provide kind of one-time uh, debriefing and group support. We also do uh, recurring debriefing and group support for folks that would benefit from having an ongoing place where they can connect and talk about what's going on and kind of process in meaningful ways. Is that what you guys do for like the palliative care team? Yep, they, yep, we do that for the palliative care team. We do that for um, an internal medicine team. And um, we will be starting to do it for um, the, the PICU um, in, in um, collaboration with the um, pediatric faculty mm -hmm. starting this month that we're pretty excited for. Yeah, so teams that have really challenging interactions with you know, lots of sad things that I think that, that sounds great. You guys do a lot. I didn't realize it was so extensive. Yeah, and we also have a peer support program, just to throw that plug out there too, where we're training folks all around UUH to, um, I, I think the, the theme that we're trying to spread is to acknowledge, connect, and support. And so we're trying to help people have emotional literacy and ways to connect and support colleagues mm -hmm. uh, and be vulnerable and kind of ask about the things that maybe typically don't get asked about. But in addition to that, we also have like this volunteer peer support program where when folks go through a, a difficult work experience, whether it's um, a, a malpractice lawsuit or um, a, a, a patient outcome that they weren't expecting, we can connect them with other people with similar job titles, but who are in a different department who have experience with that, that can provide some support going through that experience. So yeah. How we, many people do you have doing that right now, like peer support? Well, I mean, it's so I just kind of described a couple different tiers or tier one is like train as many people as we can and get them okay. uh, into as many teams as possible. We have a training coming up uh, this week where we have about 30 people signed up for it. Um, and then like the tier two would be the uh, the volunteers that we have set okay. up. And we have folks from nursing and surgery and uh, internal medicine um, who have gone through the training and are signed up and are, are, are kind of ready to be activated. Mm -hmm. uh, we get a referral from risk management or patient safety or, right. or kind of one of those areas. And are there um, groups yet? I know um, I had talked with some other people about that being something that might be started, like, you know, physician groups for physicians who are all dealing with like a similar challenge. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about that. I mean, some of these group check-ins kind of operate like that, but those are whole teams. And what you're talking about would be like providers or nurses from all over coming together to kind of be able to support each other. We're in conversation about that. Also with the Huntsman Mental Health Institute to figure out kind of who would best provide those services. Right, right. So do you want to just briefly talk about what a check-in is and that, how that can be incorporated into a team? Uh, yeah, check-in is, um, honestly, it feels like most, some of the most important work that we do is we'll come in and we'll usually at a typical staff meeting, they'll give us like 45 minutes because they have to do some logistics in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'll go over some information. Um, we've been going over a lot of the SAMHSA um, uh, crisis response uh, diagram about what long-term crisis responding looks like in, in an organization because that's kind of what we're going through with because COVID COVID's right been now. going on for a year and it's still right right, right. and so um uh, but then we'll, we'll, we'll well, what I really like to do is we'll break out into uh, small groups and we'll answer a few questions like what's hard right now um 
um, uh, what's been working well, um, what has your team done well to support each other, what are things that you want to uh, continue to do or to add to support your team. And so we'll have these small group discussions and then we'll come back and we'll report from the small groups to the larger group and kind of develop some kind of behavioral goals for wellness and support amongst the team. And I find that just taking the time to allow teams to like connect and talk and acknowledge what's difficult and acknowledge what's been great is that's such a, a useful intervention in and of itself. Because mm -hmm. there's usually not enough time for that kind of thing. There's never enough time. Yeah. <laughs> and one thing you may have learned through your work with other providers is if things aren't getting aren't paid for if you're not getting paid it's hard to find time to do it yeah absolutely yeah. um you know fitting in things in between patients and that sort of thing um one thing that i find interesting that's come up during COVID is this whole uh, hero culture idea of like healthcare heroes yeah and i find that to be really challenging i was just wondering what your opinion is on that uh, it is challenging um and and what i find is that um uh, there's some nice impacts like people being recognized for the hard work that they're doing but my experience is most people are uncomfortable with that label yeah um, I'm definitely uncomfortable with you're that. uncomfortable with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it also feels kind of short-lived so we had a bunch of hero signs around Salt Lake for uh, healthcare workers right. um, back in what was it April and May huh. and we're just about a year into it and you really don't see that that much anymore and so folks right. are like that was then and who are we now and you know, and then everything got politicized with uh, public health and stuff like that, which felt kind of abandoning to a lot of healthcare workers, I think. Yeah, um, for sure. Public at large. And so I think a lot of folks were kind of disillusioned with that process. Yeah. And when I think of the definition of a hero, I think of someone who puts this problem above all else and, you know, they just get rid of everything else in their life and just fight for whatever cause this is, I don't know, like a warrior, that sort of thing. And I don't think that's necessarily healthy for anyone to think that that's how they have to act. So that's why I, really, I didn't really identify with it personally. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Uh, and certainly it's hard to kind of sustain that expectation for any sure. length of period. Right, and if it's like, you know, some sort of emergency that's a short amount of time, but definitely not something that's so ongoing as, as COVID. Yeah. Um, one thing that I saw on the website that I wanted to bring up, and this is from um, Dr. Amy Locke, who's the other um, person that I interviewed for the medical provider wellness, these two part series that we're doing is the ways our five ways our culture of wellness is working. And this is for, and she's talking about the University of Utah Health, but I thought it's also applicable um, to people outside of the organization. So I was just gonna go over those five and you've probably read this before too. One is we connect as humans, human connection is a basic need for survival. And that I think at the beginning of COVID that was really challenging before people figured out how to Zoom with the grandparents across the country, um, how to you know socially distance and see friends outside. For me personally, that was really hard. And I'm sure you'd agree that connection is super important. Like as humans, we are, as a species, we connect and we don't do things in a single singular fashion. So I think that's super key. Yeah. I mean, our, our main message right now at the Resiliency Center is that acknowledge, connect, support message, kind of simple three words. We want people to, I mean, that's how fundamental we think it is to wellness. Mm -hmm. and, and although I do think there was a shift for a lot of folks in figuring out how to stay connected in this digital world that COVID brought upon us, 
I think it's important to recognize that for folks that maybe didn't have those pre-established social support systems, it's kind of extra hard to work to create that in this in this uh, place that we're in now. It's hard to meet new people. It's hard to make new friends. It's kind of awkward to do that over Zoom, kind of right. typically. So, right. Um, I just want to kind of acknowledge that that yeah. uh, there's been some transition, but it's also uh, made things difficult. Challenging, right? Yeah. For sure. I know. I was thinking of. And this is, I'm very happy to be married. I don't know how people date during this time. Like just that. So you're like talking about making new connections, like stuff like that. It would be really hard. Yeah. I, yeah, definitely. Dating is a whole nother kind of right. Try to right. <laughs> right. Um, so number two in her list was we respect personal time for ourselves and others. For me, that goes into the like anti-hero thing. Like if you're a hero, you can't have personal time, but I think we see how important that is, but how challenging it is for people who work from home and have their maybe have their kids home from schools. How do you have personal time when you, nothing is you never by yourself? You know, the idea of personal time is not having your kids on their on their Zooms or sitting at the table with you. Yeah, it's been a real double-edged sword with personal time and for folks who are working from home. Like in some ways, it, it's been uh, maybe nice to have lunch with. Uh, your your kid who's home from school for lunch and same time you have kids screaming in the background or uh, it, you know I found personally like it's harder for me to shut down at five o'clock when I would typically leave the office I'm right. still emailing and stuff like that I don't have that that um, kind of ritualistic separation time that mm -hmm. I used to have and so it has to be kind of a cognitive routine that you develop right and that's how people talk about the commute you know no one likes to commute but Commute is when I have time to like listen to the radio program I want to listen to or listen right. to the podcast and I actually like having that 20 minutes to myself. And so I know people are talking about like adding that back in, like some sort of like home commute shift, which That's I find right. interesting. It's finding a new ritual to kind of make that separation more tangible. Right. Yeah. So number three in her list was we recognize the bright spots. One is appreciating the work of colleagues and sharing that appreciation. The others recognizing what is going well and finding ways to spread the success. And that was something I'd mentioned to you and when we were emailing before this is the, um, I think this goes along with the gratitude. Um, do you wanna talk about that? How there's research and gratitude that actually can change our, change our brains? Yeah, I mean, it's gratitude or in another intervention, uh, you know, where you do a gratitude journal is yeah. associated with kind of increased mood, but uh, three good things. Is a, is a popular intervention in uh, health systems for healthcare workers. And that's basically, I mean, there's a few ways to do it, but identify three good things at the end of the day that occurred that day. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then ask yourself, what role did you have in bringing those good things about? Which I think is a nice way to kind of reinforce the things that you're doing to bring positivity into your life. Mm -hmm. um, I, I sometimes, Three, three sometimes feels a lot for me to assign homework with folks that I work with, so right. to speak. And so sometimes I'll just have them do one thing. I think, again, the idea is, is that when you're depressed or burnt out or anxious, you're ruminating about a lot of negative things that are happening mm -hmm. in your life. And so if we get people kind of ruminating more positively about the things that are going well, then they're more likely to remember them and reinforce the behaviors that causes those things to occur. Right. And the research shows that just doing a, a one good thing at the end of the day for two weeks will boost mood for up to six months. They didn't go past six months in their mm -hmm. follow-up research, but um, it boosted mood uh, uh, significantly compared to, to uh, control groups. And that's, that's among healthcare workers specifically. So mm -hmm. that's a pretty 
great finding for a pretty simple technique. And I heard that it was something like comparable to taking an SSRI, like amount of mood. Exactly. Boosting, yep. Which is kind of crazy. It is crazy. Yeah. Um, although we often find that behavioral techniques are about equal to uh, SSRIs right. when you look at like psychotherapy results right. compared to antidepressants. Right. Which is why I tell all my patients therapy plus medication as the best effect versus That's one right. by themselves. Yep. By themselves. Yeah. And um, the next one is that she talked about was number four, we promote a, a safe culture. And for me, a big part of that has been like the PPE, making sure like at the beginning of this, you know, we didn't have enough. Everyone felt a little nervous about, I remember having to reuse the surgical mask for a week before we'd get a new one. But now I think this organization in general has done a great job of making sure we have enough stuff to feel, to feel sick or feel sick, to feel like safe at, at work, which is important. Yeah, you know, I've talked to healthcare workers from other systems where it feels like administration and leaders kind of left them alone and don't understand what's going on in, in the trenches, mm -hmm. so to speak. But I got to say, consistently, the folks that I speak to at UUH feel like leaders and administration are working hard to keep them safe. And that's a really positive result in, in my book. Right. And for me personally, and I think for a lot of other healthcare providers, getting the vaccine in our arm was a yes. huge uh, feeling safe. So the fact that, you know, we were able to get that is, is huge and feels, feels really, feels really good. Now I'm in the patient rooms to know that I've been vaccinated because it's hard to do pediatrics through a, through zoom. It's a lot of in-person stuff still. So. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. And the last one that for me personally, I think in general is learning when to say no, that's been huge in my own life as a physician and a mother and a wife and all those things is learning to say no. So like for me personally, I don't work on Wednesdays. I'm off on Wednesdays and I like run marathons. So that's when I run and I'm taking horseback riding lessons. That's when I do that. And, but you know, people still want to meet with me on Wednesdays, but I don't. And I say, no, I'm not available, but that can be really challenging. But for me, the boundary is really important. And I think in general, setting boundaries is challenging as a physician, but important. Right. And, you know, the challenges for physicians specifically are that often it feels like a, a very important thing, like life or death, like it's people's medical conditions. And so, you know, that kind of stuff really eats into people's ability to set those professional boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, and they also feel like, I think a lot of folks feel like the world will collapse if they. Yeah, if, for if sure. Or that for me, it's like you're weak or why right. can't you do this? You know, there's a lot of that kind of negative self-talk stuff. Yet when people do, somehow the world doesn't collapse and Correct. figures it out. And then they tend to be more productive when they are on the clock, right? The, the, the idea of presenteeism, which is if we work so hard that we get burned out, we're doing less when we're actually at work than right. if we take some time off and we set those boundaries around our, our work experiences, we're more productive when we're at work. So and I think patients appreciate that too. Like, I think we're better medical providers if we're less burnt out and more present with them when we're with them. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then one other thing I wanted to bring up is, um, so since this is a podcast, one podcast that I've been listening to that's been helpful for mindfulness um, is 10% Happier. Have you ever listened to that? No. So, um, so it's, a mindfulness-based podcast, but I just wanted to give a plug for that. Do you have any other like podcasts that you listen to or books or 
that you read Brown podcasts i think is a wonderful uh, podcast that's that's pretty popular yeah and i i I, i've talked about her in other episodes i'm a i'm a big brene brown fan so her books and her podcast for sure Mm -hmm. um is there anything sorry i just want to point out the website Uh self-compassion.org which is Kristen neff's website that she manages herself it uh it has some great uh, skills. It also has some uh, guided self-compassion meditations, uh-huh. as well as a, a, the, the, the full uh, research overview of her work. So it's a, it's a pretty great website to check out. Yeah. And I'm going to, um, so for every podcast, if people listening didn't know this, on our the Root website, we have articles that I find that are associated with um, the information. So for this one, I'm definitely going to put... Um, the Resiliency Center website, but I have selfcompassion.org. Um, the some of the Accelerate articles that you talked about, just a link right there, so people can easily awesome. access them. Um, I think there's just uh, so much information out there that's great and helpful. So, um, anything else that you wanted to chat about that you think folks should know? You know, I, I don't know if it's helpful, but you know, a big concept that I I talk a lot about with the folks that I work with is the idea of perfectionism. Oh, yes. Please talk about that because I think medical providers, let's talk a bit about perfectionism because I think we as medical providers want to be perfect in every realm of our life. Right. I think perfectionism is a, is like a value of medical providers. Right. It's for good reason. Like you want excellence. You want to do as good of a job as you can in every situation. Um, But perfectionism uh, is associated with some negative things like stress and anxiety and depression and, and, um, even suicidality, um, but research on perfectionism has found that there's kind of two kinds of perfectionists. And uh, the reason why I think this is good news for providers is we're not going to ask them to change their values and expectations. They mm-hmm. can remain perfectionists, but um, so that so the two are the adaptive perfectionists and the maladaptive perfectionists. Um, both have high ideals, high expectations. Both tend to achieve more in life. Both tend to. Uh, get a lot out of life. The, the, the outcomes that are different are that the adaptive perfectionists are associated with less stress, less anxiety, less depression um, than the folks that, are mal, uh, that have maladaptive um, uh, perfectionism. The only difference between these two groups is how they respond to themselves when they don't fully meet their ideals or values or goals, mm-hmm. right? Which happens all the time if you're a perfectionist because you expect perfection but as human beings, we often fall short of perfection. And so how do you treat yourself in, in the face of that situation? And it turns out self-compassion is the big difference between the two. So if you make a mistake or if you don't do something perfectly and you're compassionate about it, you're gonna have more of a growth mindset on how to kind of learn from the experience and improve in the future. If you're really self-critical, you, you're gonna not learn as much and you're gonna feel really stressed out um, uh, and you're going to have more associations with things like depression and anxiety. So um, the good news is providers don't need to change their high expectations and values. Just be mm-hmm. kind to yourself when you don't live up to them, which is inevitable as a human being. Right. That's so interesting to think of because I'm just thinking of my own kids who are both school aged and, you know, my son is in fourth grade. He makes a mistake on a math test. He gets kind of bummed. And I'm like, it's just about learning from your mistakes. You don't have to be perfect, you know? <laughs> but somehow, it, right. Somehow it becomes different if you're a physician or I don't know, as an adult, sometimes I don't think we think it's okay to make mistakes, but it obviously is. 
Yeah, you know, I find that um, a lot of folks initial like discomfort with the idea of self-compassion is it feels like they're letting themselves off the hook mm-hmm. when that's really kind of the opposite of it. So when you are really self-critical, you're going to be hard on yourself and it's going to be painful. As human beings, we respond by avoiding things that cause us pain. Right. And so we're going to look less into the situation if we're really self-critical. Mm-hmm. If we're self-compassionate, we can take a more honest accounting because We have the tool to look at it and kind of touch the things that hurt us a little bit more and be able to learn from it in a a better way. So I I have to combat that thought that it's like letting you off the hook. Right. Awesome. That's a good thing to note. Great. Well, this is a really awesome conversation. I hope that folks go to the Resiliency Center website. So like I said, just Google University of Utah Health Resiliency Center. There's lots of amazing resources on there. And yeah, thanks for chatting. I think knowing also that you're available or the Resiliency Center is available for the therapy stuff for folks who are in the community associated with University of Utah Health, even adjunct faculty is is helpful. Well, thanks and I'll uh, chat soon. Thank you.